in Paul's letters to the church at Corinth, uh, we are reminded of the many challenges he faced. As a matter of fact, we're also reminded of the many challenges this church at Corinth has faced. Uh, Paul, when he was preaching and teaching the gospel, um, he had conflict. He, he, he saw it. He saw conflict on the outside, but he also had internal conflict. There were just challenges everywhere. But Paul, especially in this second letter, okay, in 2 Corinthians, more than anything, Paul is sharing his heart. He's sharing his heart with this church about what he has done and why he has done it. He is pouring out his heart to this church. And he's doing it in such a way that no one could question his motivation. No one could question his motivation in gospel ministry. You know what motivated him in gospel ministry? Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection. Paul's motivation was making Jesus known. That was it. He wanted anyone and everyone who heard his voice, who saw his life, he wanted them to know Jesus. That was his motivation. And I'm telling you, nobody could question that. Paul said, I've been beaten, I've been jailed, I've been cussed out, I've been this, I've been that. And his message has never changed. Jesus Christ loves you. Jesus Christ loves you so much that he died for you. Jesus Christ rose from the grave to defeat your sin, to defeat death so that you might live. His message has never changed. And so that's his motivation in gospel ministry. Now, if you wasn't with us last week, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul reminds us of something very important. He reminds us that we are temples. We are temples. We are dwelling places of the living God. And because we are temples of the living God, this should impact the way we live in this world. So when we know and understand that the spirit of the living God dwells within us, that should change. That should change the way we live in this world. And that's what Paul, he, that's what he magnified in chapter 6. Now in chapter 7, I know we've been talking about these challenges, and I know we've been talking about some hard things. Paul had to say some very hard things, some very difficult things. And sometimes his tone, um, it came across as a father disciplined his children, okay? Because remember, Paul was like a spiritual father to this church. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul expresses his encouragement. That's what it's all about. He is greatly encouraged. He expresses his encouragement because of what he has heard about the church in Corinth. So that's what chapter 7 is all about. If I had to say one word to to, to describe or define chapter 7, it's encouragement. Paul is encouraged about what he has seen and heard from this church. So we're going to dig in. We're going to break this up into several passages So let's look at the first four verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. 
We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I love that. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. Listen to that. That's Paul, right? The spiritual father looking at his children, talking to his children, and he says, I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. So Paul says, I've faced hardships. I've faced sufferings. I've faced troubles. But what does he say? He says, my joy abounds. Why does it abound? Because he is proud of the church, who she is, and the way she is demonstrating her love in the community. So in light of God's promises, that's what I want you to see. That's what Paul wants you to see here. In light of God's promises, Paul wants the believers to take their relationships with God and with others seriously. He, he wants them to know that the relationship they have with God and the relationship they have with one another, it is serious. And, and so when we live... And we've talked about this in previous chapters, but when we live with a proper fear of God, it should lead us to be in awe of God. It should lead us to love God more. And if we love God more, it should lead us to love one another even more. We should treat each other. If we are in a respectful relationship with God, that should lead us to be in respectful relationships with one another. A proper relationship with God should lead us daily to die of self, right? To die of self and to live for Christ. That's what Paul was communicating in these first four verses. He goes on and Paul denies, right? He denies any wrongdoing. Now let me ask you this. Why do you think he denies any wrongdoing? Because there are false teachers saying what? You can't trust this guy. He made promises and didn't keep it. This guy's not telling you the whole truth. Look, he had people in the church, false teachers in the church, that were trying to divide them from one another and especially divide them from Paul. So Paul denies any wrongdoing. He says, we didn't do anything wrong to you. We didn't corrupt you. We didn't exploit you. Paul says, we didn't do this to the church. But he also says that his words, right, they're not an act of condemnation. He said, I'm not saying this to condemn you. He's actually speaking from a heart full of joy. So Paul wants to make very clear, right, I'm not trying to defend myself and I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm trying to say I'm encouraged by you. I take pride in you. Because you are listening and you are doing. You are taking serious your relationship with God. You're taking serious your relationship with one another. And I hear that. So even though Paul had to say some very difficult things uh, to the church, he said them from a heart full of joy. He said them with an attitude of love. Again, Paul saw his his hardships, his trouble, I believe, through the lenses of God's love and joy. 
I believe that's what's taking place here. That's why he says, I am greatly encouraged. Right? He sees the church being who God called her to be in the world. Not just talking, but actually living in the community the way God created her. So this is an encouraging word from Paul. And it's going to continue to be encouraging all the way through. So let's look at the next passage, verses 5 through 7. He says, For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. We were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. So do you see that? Paul was facing external challenges, but he was also facing internal challenges. But look at what he says in verse 6. But God. Don't you love those two words? I love it when the Bible says, but God, because something good's coming. It says, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than than ever. Now, I'm going to tell you, that, that's some powerful verses right there. First of all, I love what Paul says. Paul says, God comforts me, right? So God comforts Paul. How? He comforts him through Titus and through the church, the believers. So even in the midst of all the harassment that Paul was facing, even in the midst of this external conflict, even in the midst of internal conflict, the fears, right, that Paul had, he experienced comfort. He had been waiting on Titus. Now, you may not understand this, but he had sent Titus to the church with a letter. And he was waiting for Titus to come back. And Titus didn't come back as soon as he thought he was going to come back. So Paul is waiting and waiting and waiting. Do you know what happens When you're waiting and waiting and waiting, your mind starts playing with you, don't it? Your mind starts telling you things that may or may not be true. And it's hard to determine what's true and what's not. So you just start thinking, oh, this is what it's going to be. Oh, this is what it's going to be. So you just start playing these games, right, with your mind. And, and, And listen, your mind will start saying things. And guess how you will respond if you're not careful? Fearfully. Right? You'll, you'll be scared. You'll be fearful. You'll start thinking worse, right? Instead of expecting something good, you'll expect something bad. I can speak from experience. I do that to myself all the time. So, so, so he had been waiting on Titus to bring back the report from Corinth. And part of the comfort was when he saw and heard from Titus. See, part of that internal fear that Paul talked about was his mind racing that the church in Corinth didn't receive the rebuke well, that they didn't take his tone, right, as loving, and maybe they just flat out rejected him. Those are thoughts that Paul had in his mind. That's that internal conflict that was raging. And I'm telling you, many, many times, my mind makes a lot of noise, and a lot of times it ain't a good noise, right? It's a racket that needs to shut up. <laughs> and so I ask God all the time, please turn that volume down in my head, uh, at least my volume, and turn your volume up. I, I pray that all the time. So Paul was waiting on good news, and then he saw Titus, right? 
And he said, God comforted me. God comforted me through Titus. And God comforted him through what Titus told him. See, the believers, here's what we find out. The believers long for Paul. In other words, they wanted to see him. They were desperate to see him or to hear from him. It said that their hearts are overflowing with two things, concern and sorrow for Paul. They were concerned. Why hasn't Paul been able to be with us? Then they got the letters and they were sorry, right? They were sorry for Paul because they realized just how desperate he wanted to be with them, right? And so it was the letters from Paul that made them aware of the challenges that they faced. And what we see from Titus is that they actually received the instructions. But it was the fear of the Lord, right? And the Spirit of God that enabled them not just to receive the instructions, not just to hear the instructions, but to actually do what the Lord commanded them to do. And that was the joy, right? When Paul understood that these people had listened and acted upon his letter, he said, my joy is even greater than it was before, right? He was so joyful. The joy in in Paul's heart was multiplying. It was exploding from within because he got a great report from Titus about this church, this church that he loved. And so let's finish this out with verses 8 through 16. It's a little lengthier passage, but you can't really break this up. So we're going to just kind of read through it, and then we'll pick it apart and digest it. So beginning in verse 8. Paul says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. And there it is. That is a key word in all of this. He said, yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. And here's why. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. So now he wants them to understand what the godly sorrow has produced in them. He says, see what it has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, You have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party, but rather, he's saying, here's why I wrote, but rather that before God you could see yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all of this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit 
Look at this. Because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. Right? It's, it's kind of like when you tell people, hey, uh, my son's coming over, and my son is so good at working, you know, in the yard. He's such a good, you know, he can mow the yard. He can weed. He's going to do a good job. And all the time you're thinking, please don't mess this up. I just told this person that, that you're, you're the bomb.com and you're, you're awesome, so please don't embarrass me, right? That's what we do as parents, right? We pump our kids up and then we're like, please do what I said. Please display what I have bragged about. And so Paul says, I love this. He said, I had boasted to him about you and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad. Listen to this, right? This is Paul talking to his spiritual children. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. That's pretty powerful. That's pretty powerful. I love it when I can look my own children in the eye and say, you got this. I believe in you, right? I have confidence in you. Don't you love it when you're able to look at your children and say that? I mean, don't you love it when you can look anybody in the eye and say, I believe in you. I have confidence in you. And that's what Paul is saying to this church. Now, think about this. Think about every word we've read. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and how sometimes they didn't get it right. Sometimes they faced dire consequences. Think about all the challenges. And, and yes, even the yucky stuff, right? The mess-ups that we've talked about up to this point. And Paul finishes chapter 7 with that verse. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. That's a, pretty, that's a pretty big pump you up right there. So from the context, right, of both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, here's what we know, okay? So if you study these letters and you look at everything Paul has said, what we know is that Paul wrote more than two letters to the church at Corinth. He wrote more than two letters. So what theologians tell us is that one of the letters between 1st and 2nd Corinthians was not included in the canon of what we call the Bible. Or that letter could have been lost. We, we don't know for sure, but we do know from Paul's own words that he wrote another letter to them. And so theologians say that at least one or two more letters from Paul were either lost or they were not included in the scripture that we have today. And it is very likely that one of those letters was between 1st and 2nd Corinthians that we have. And so that is what Paul could have been referring to in this passage, right? He was waiting on a response from Titus about a letter that he had sent them. And it definitely wasn't 1st Corinthians because Titus comes along after that. So that's, that's what theologians tell us. That's what I personally agree with based on the context and the language that we've already, you know, the words that Paul has already used. But 
Here's the truth of this passage, right? Number one, Paul is confident. He is confident and not regretful in his letter to them. Why? Because it produced sorrow that leads to repentance. He was confident that he wrote the letter that needed to be written, right? And he did not regret that letter. Why? Because it produced godly sorrow. And that godly sorrow led to repentance. So Paul's words and tone worked together. Were they hard words? Absolutely they were hard words. Did he have to come across with some discipline language? Absolutely he did because he's a spiritual father dealing with spiritual children. But I I love this. Uh, Pastor Greg Laurie, I mentioned him this morning. Um, Pastor Greg Laurie said this in one of his sermons um, from 2 Corinthians. He said, you can be theologically correct, but also unloving at the same time. Did you hear me? You can be theologically correct, but you can also be unloving. And that's dangerous. He says, what we need to be is theologically correct and loving at the same time. Some people mark their Bibles, but their Bibles don't mark them. (laughs) Yeah, I said the same thing when I heard him preach that. Some people mark their Bibles, but their Bibles don't mark them. I'm going to tell you, that hit me. That hit me hard. Because, you know, you want to come up here and look at my Bible? (laughs) You come up here and look at my Bible and you're going to see pencil marks everywhere, words circled, little quotations that say, go see this passage, go see that passage. Listen to me. You can read this thing all day long and you can mark it up all day long. But until it truly impacts your life, and the way you talk to people, and the way you touch people, the way you see people, and the way you hear people, who cares? I don't, I don't care how many Bibles you got in your house. What about the Bible you're showing people that you talk to every day? Right? Don't, don't, don't quote me how many passages of Scripture you know. Quote it to people who need to hear it, who are lost and need to see Jesus and know Jesus. Right? In other words... Don't just mark your Bible. Pray that God would use the Bible to mark you. I I love that. That's a powerful, powerful statement. And I believe that's the statement that Paul was making to the church. Be the church that God created you to be in the community that He has placed you. And I love this. I want to go back to the sorrow because we see that word throughout this passage, don't we? We, we see this word sorrow. And I don't know about you, but that's not really a word that I just want <laughs> to cuddle up with, right? I, I like to be happy, right? I like energy. I like excitement. I like joy. So I don't know that I would just choose the word sorrow and like cuddle up to it. But it's not a bad word. And we got we to gotta set our minds to understand that sorrow is not bad. And it's not negative. Paul speaks of two kinds of sorrow. Number one, he speaks of godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. And he tells us that godly sorrow leads to life. He uses the word salvation, but that word salvation means life. So there's godly sorrow, right? And godly sorrow leads to repentance. And repentance leads to 
forgiveness, right? And there's great joy when you know that you have been forgiven and set free. So godly sorrow leads to life. But then he says there's another kind of sorrow. It's worldly sorrow. And what does he say about worldly sorrow? What does it lead to? Death. Death. Let me tell you about worldly sorrow. And I have experience with this. Worldly sorrow is usually expressed in the disappointment and regret of being caught. Worldly sorrow is expressed in the disappointment and the regret being caught. I got caught doing was what doing what was wrong. And I focus on man, I wish I didn't get caught. Right? I wish nobody knew about that. Worldly sorrow is about getting busted for doing wrong. Your focus is in the wrong spot. Right? And so I believe worldly sorrow is not true remorse. Worldly sorrow does not lead to repentance over doing what was wrong. It just leads to regret that I got caught. That's worldly sorrow. And so I'm going to tell you, don't look at this as unbeliever-believer. Because I'm going to tell you, believers, if we want to be truthful, more times than not, we practice worldly sorrow. Or else why do we keep doing the same thing over and over again? Right? More times than not, we're just as guilty as practicing worldly sorrow as unbelievers. So let's not make this a believer-unbeliever conversation. Because who was Paul talking to? He was talking to the church. Right? This was a letter to the church at Corinth. Believers. Paul wasn't preaching to unbelievers. Paul was preaching to the church. Believers. And so, worldly sorrow, it's regret because I got caught. I got busted. Godly sorrow, right? Godly sorrow is confronting sin, right? It's pain and remorse. God, I did wrong before you. Brother, I did wrong before you. Sister, I did wrong before you. And I don't want to do that anymore. Not just I'm sorry, but I'm guilty. See, people ask me about repentance all the time. Repentance is not me just saying I'm sorry. Repentance is me saying I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I own it. I'm not going to blame him or her or them. I'm not going to blame God. No, that's on me. That's godly sorrow. It leads to repentance. And repentance leads to forgiveness and glory to God. Godly sorrow always results in glory to God. I love what Dr. Tony Evans says. He he makes a biblical comparison about worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Listen to what he says. He said, worldly sorrow is what Judas experienced after he betrayed Jesus. He knew he had sinned and was filled with remorse, but he was unwilling to repent. In contrast, Peter experienced godly sorrow after he denied Jesus. It led to his repentance and a recommitment to the Lord, and it resulted in the Lord reinstating him to gospel ministry. You see that? Worldly sorrow practiced by Judas did not lead to repentance. It led to him being out in that field and his intestines pouring out of his body. It led to death. 
Peter, on the other hand, godly sorrow expressed through repentance led to restoration. And who got the glory? God did. Because God did to Peter what only God could do. Mm, That's good. And so, Paul goes on, and, and finishing this out, Paul goes on, and he said the Corinthians' repentance bears fruit. Right? He said your repentance is bearing fruit. And here's what he said. Here's what the fruit looks like. Number one, sincerity. He said you're, you're, you're earnest. Right? That means sincerity. It leads to readiness. Right? He used the word eagerness. Right? Readiness. So sincerity, readiness. Not only that, it led to repulsion and alarm over sin. In other words, their sin was repulsive to them. Right? Oh, man, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did. That makes me sick. Listen to me. If you get to the point to where your sin ain't making you sick, you ain't praying. And you ain't listening to the Spirit. Right? If you get to the point to where you can sin and don't think twice about it, you're in a bad place. I'm in a bad place if we get there. Your sin ought to make you repulsive. Right? It it, it ought to make you sick. And you ought to be alarmed. How could I do that? How could I say that? How could I do that to God and to someone else? Not only that, he says it produces a longing for righteousness. Right? A longing for righteousness. I just want to be the hands and feet of Christ. I just want to speak the words of Christ. Righteousness. I long for righteousness. Not only that, but a concern for justice. A concern that what needs to be done is right according to God's word. And then he finishes it off with proof of innocence. He says you have proved yourself, right? Your faith, your repentance, the godly sorrow has proved your innocence. And Paul says I experienced great encouragement and great joy multiplied because of this fruit that you are bearing. So this is a church bearing fruit, right? And where did that fruit come from? It came from godly sorrow, brokenness because of sinfulness. It came from repentance, owning it and turning from it, and God forgiving them, right? Restoring them. That's where the fruit came from. Paul says, I'm concerned. I'm concerned for both the wrongdoer and the injured party, but that's not why I'm writing this letter. I'm writing this letter because I'm more concerned that you, the church, See your devotion to the gospel being preached in God's presence. Paul said, I want you to see your devotion to the Lord, the devotion to his leaders, the devotion to God, and I want you to see it in his presence. He wanted them to know who they were in Christ, and he wanted them to know their purpose in Christ. So, what does he do? He commends the church. He commends the church. He says, good job. Why? Because they refreshed Titus' spirit, right? He commends the church for refreshing Titus' spirit and impressing Titus. They made an impression on Titus. Titus went there going, man, Paul is about to lay the wood on them. And he went in there thinking, how are they going to take it? He came back, I believe he came back with a smile on his face, right? And said, oh, Paul, let me tell you what I saw. Let me tell you what I heard. Right? They made an impression upon him with their obedience. He said, you made an impression because 
of your fear and your trembling. So because they were focused on God, right, a proper fear of God, they were led by the Spirit of God to repent of their sin. They were led by the Spirit of God to receive Titus humbly, and their repentance led to much fruit, an overflowing of fruit. And Titus took that evidence back to Paul, and it strengthened Paul's confidence in them. It strengthened the joy that he had in his heart for them. Why? Because they were truly a vessel of God's love and grace and mercy to that community. So, two questions. Number one, do we truly understand that both our obedience and our disobedience will impact fellow believers? I think that's one of the biggest things, right? I think what happens for many, many people in the church is that when they walk out of this door, right, they believe they can just go out there and say what they want and do what they want and it won't really impact us in here. Wrong, wrong, wrong. That is a lie of the devil. If you are connected to God, you are connected to me. I'm your brother in Christ. If you are connected to God, we are connected to one another, his bride, his church. See what Jeff says and does out there, right? It's not just because Jeff's a pastor that it should matter to you as the church. It's because Jeff is your brother in Christ that it should matter to you. And oh yeah, it will impact you. It'll impact your influence in the community. And it's just as powerful for you as it is for me. Yeah. Do we understand that? Do we understand our obedience to God or our disobedience to God is not just going to impact us. It's going to impact our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what Paul wanted to make sure, right, that they knew. And not only that, and this is important, are we willing to intervene with truth and love when our fellow believers are caught in sin? Are we willing to pray for them? Are we willing to line up beside them and say, hey, I I know life is difficult right now, but let me remind you of what God's Word says. Notice I didn't say take your finger and stick it in their face because that is never a good way to do it. How many of you like somebody sticking their finger in your face? Does anybody like that? Then why would we do that to anybody? Why would we do that to anybody? Right? Does anybody like being called out in front of a group of other people? I don't. Personally, I don't. Now, I'm not saying that wasn't done sometimes, but I'm saying we need to pray, right? We need to pray first. God, help me be a voice of love and concern. And God, help me be a vessel of your grace and your mercy to my brother or sister who right now is living in disobedience. I just want them to know how much I love them. I'm not here to prove I'm right and they're wrong. And oh boy, don't we mess that up. Because a lot of times, that's what we want to do. We want to go to them and say, you're wrong, I'm right, get it right. That's not how we're called to live, I'm sorry. That, that's, you're going to have to show me that in Scripture, where it's your job to tell somebody that way. What I see is Jesus says, oh, I love you. 
I love you. Does he say go and sin no more? He sure does. But check his tone. And check what he does before he says that. Right? Paul wants them to intervene, but he wants them to intervene the right way. With love. With God's grace and God's mercy. Not condemnation. And we see that throughout this letter. Paul says, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm just going to point you to the truth. And by the way, I love you, church. You're doing a great job. You encourage me. My heart is overflowing with joy because you have repented. Godly sorrow has brought repentance, and repentance has brought restoration. Paul was greatly encouraged by what God had done, what God was going to do, what God would continue to do throughout the life of this church. And guess what? Paul says, I'm participating with you. I'm in this with you. And so just as Paul says that to the church, I'm saying that to you. I'm so thankful, right? I'm so thankful that you pray. I'm so thankful that you care. I'm so thankful that you love. That's what I see, right? From where I stand, right? From where I stand, I see you praying. I see you loving. I see you caring. From where I stand... I see people who are ready for God to move and expecting God to move. I saw it this morning. Did you? I've been seeing it on weekdays when a group comes in this kitchen and makes bread and takes it out to the community. I've been seeing it in our women's ministry and our men's ministry for a long time. I see it in our student ministry. I see it in our children. And I'm going to tell you, I don't want to stop seeing it. You keep being who God created you to be. You keep doing what God calls you to do. And more than anything, just love God and love people. Don't get caught up with trying to be right. Man, we can can get so policy-driven and so law-driven that we just leave love out of it. And I don't ever want to be there, ever. Does God have law and commands? Absolutely He does. But I want to lead with love. And if I lead with love, then I can get to God's law. And that's the best way to do it. That's the best way to do it. Because I'm going to tell you, the ones that kept bringing the law up over and over in the Bible, who do we call them? Say it a little louder. Yeah, Pharisees. The Pharisees were the ones who always kept bringing up the law. Law, 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 law. What did Jesus do? I'll tell you what he did. He loved. He loved. And when the time was right, (laughs) he spoke the truth. That's where I want to be. God, I want to be like Jesus. I don't want to be like the Pharisees. I want to be like Jesus. Help me be like Jesus. Help me talk to people like Jesus. Help me see people like Jesus. Help me love on people like Jesus did. And if I can create, God, if I can create a relationship with them, I'll have an avenue, right? I'll have an avenue to to point them to the Scriptures and to point them to your commands and to tell them this is what pleases God. This is how God says to do it. I love it when young couples come in my office and they want to do some premarital counseling before we have the wedding. I love it when they come in so we can just look at what God's Word says. But here's the thing. I don't bash them. 
Right? I, don't, I don't bash them and say, the world does this, you need to do this. You need. Here's what I say. Let me tell you what God says. God says he loves you. And if God has called you to be together, God has called you to be a husband this way. God has called you to be a wife this way. And God has called you to be one flesh and do this with your life. I, I love the conversations we have in that room. My office or the lunch, wherever we go, wherever we meet. I, I just want to point people to the truth of God's word. I do. But if I fail to love them, then what does it matter? If I fail to love them, what does it matter? Paul has another thing, right? You can do all these things, but without love, they're just what? Noise. Thank you. Clanging symbols. They're just noise. Right? You can do all those things. You can quote the policy, quote the law, but if you don't love them, what does it matter? Nothing. Loud racket. Loud racket. Loud racket. Love, love, love. So I thank God. I thank God for the church. I thank God for this church. Loving God, loving people. Keep doing it. You want to see a move of the Spirit? Love. Just love. Love God, love people. And watch what the Spirit will do. Watch what the Spirit will do, not just to you, but through you. He will give you opportunities to talk to people, to, to meet with people, to help people, and it'll bring Him glory. It'll bring Him glory. You won't even worry about being right. You'll just, you'll just be concerned with God. Are you pleased? Did I please you? It's good stuff. Mm, good stuff. Greatly encouraged.